We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Reading, reading our favorite books. I'm gonna light a candle for this podcast to bring soothing vibes. Soothing vibes. As we talk about our book. Do you need to be soothed post rereading this book? No, it, I, I just, I have a candle. So why not? Can the microphone pick up the sounds of flames? I don't think no, so. No, I don't think so. Unless you had one of those like crackling candles. <laughs> I'll just stick in a, a fireplace sound effect. No, no, you know those, those candles that like crackle. They're specifically made to make crackling noises. Are you talking about those candles that will never go out kind of no, thing? No, 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 no. So they, no, there are normal candles that they're built with a specific type of wick that makes like a crackling noise when you burn it. And it's meant to be vaguely reminiscent of like a fireplace, just a lot quieter because it's one candle. But like they're made with a specific type of wick to like make noise. Wow. I did not know about the existence of this. Oh, uh, yeah. Sounds uh, wonderful. They are. I have owned multiple of them. They are lovely. Well, I don't know how to segue out of this into, uh, <laughs> so I guess we should just talk about what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, it's your, it's your turn, so you go. No, it's your turn, because we did Twilight, and I introduced no, Twilight. I introduced Twilight. What are you talking about? I introduced it. On this episode, we are talking about Twilight by Stephanie Meyer? Mayer? We should just make someone do it every time. That way we never have to have this discussion. I suppose since you do the summaries all the time, I will do the introductions yes. all the time. Uh, hello. Welcome to Reread, the podcast where we talk about books from our childhood, 18 and under. And on this episode, we are talking about Things Fall Apart by... I'm just going to say it right now. Forgive us for all the mispronunciations. Here I go. Chinwa Achebe. And uh, I read this book in high school. Morgan did not read this book in high school because her school was racist. And <laughs> it was. I mean, like, I, you know, I went to a good high school, but as we've established previously on this podcast, I did not have to read any books by people of color for school. So I would say that is racist. Yeah, indeed. And honestly, just because my school gave us this book doesn't necessarily mean my school was any better than yours because I do not or I did not really remember anything from this book <laughs> because I think we read it in ninth grade. I want to say it was either ninth or 10th grade. Mm -hmm. And, you know. Our brains were still growing back then. I just really didn't remember much outside of the one detail, which really speaks to my adolescent boy brain. The one detail where there is a woman who runs around at one point in the, in the novel and she has to hold on to her boobs so they won't like bounce around. And that's the one detail I really remembered from this book. But what's interesting is that I also thought this book was set in slavery times, basically the Middle Passage era. Mm -hmm. But it is not. It's actually set in the late 19th century, I want to say. And 
slavery has nothing to do with this book necessarily. You could probably make an argument that all things point back to that. I just had really no memory of this book, but I was so interested to come back to this book because of its status as one of maybe, I think, three books by black authors that I read in high school. And this, it's set in what is now present day Nigeria. And it's, it's one of the more prominent books written by an African author that's read by high schoolers everywhere except you. And uh, I was just really <laughs> interested to come back to this book and see if it was a similar thing that we had with To Kill a Mockingbird, where coming back, I'd be like, whoa, there's a lot more going on than I remember. There's a lot more going on than I was necessarily taught. And I will say, this book is deceptively simple. It's extremely dense mm -hmm. in what it's trying to do. And even even the title itself, this book is kind of staggering in its ambitions for all the things it's trying to cover. And it is kind of remarkable that it was just taught to us as ninth graders. And I think I have a theory of why that's the case. And if my theory is true, it's incredibly insulting to this book. But basically, <laughs> the reason why is I think it was taught to us is that the language of the book is really simple. It's really easy to read. Mm -hmm. I'm sure teachers were like, oh, this would be a great book to teach to our ninth graders who know nothing of literary history, <laughs> certainly don't know the nuances and complexities of colonialism, and we're just not going to bother teaching any of that. We're just going to give them a very surface-level experience with this book. That's not great. But anyway, I've been rambling now for a little bit. How was your experience Wait, with but this I, book? No, before what? we move on with my my experience, I feel like you haven't really talked about how you feel on reread. Well, I do enjoy it. And I think this it's interesting because this is a book I'll like more as I talk about it. My mm. experience with reading it was like, I uh, um intellectually this book is extremely interesting but in terms of entertainment value it's not really quite there this is one of those things that feels like this is literature and to be fair to this book this was written for a culture that we are not a part of and mm -hmm. there are just necessarily going to be things that won't resonate with me, at least, just because I don't really know. I don't have access to the cultural value of these moments that are being recorded in this book. It's not connecting with me on a cultural level. And that's totally fine. You know, the book doesn't have to accommodate white people. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm kind of middling, I guess, in my experience coming back to this book. But I do, hopefully, the discussion is very interesting because I do think this book is doing a lot in a very cool, subtle, interesting way. So, does that answer your question, Morgan? 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, Thank you. Uh, well, I just like, you know, you were talking and I was like, you never actually gave your like opinion. So I wanted to know. I was curious. Fair enough. This podcast is technically just our opinions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think I should say that going in. Like, I'll be honest and say I did not think I was going to like this book. Mm -hmm. Things I've heard from other people, not from you, because you, like you said, you didn't really remember it. And so you didn't really tell me anything other than you read it in high school and you wanted to reread it. But I've heard from other people, uh, specifically other women, that they have really hadn't enjoyed reading it in high school because of how female characters were treated. You know, that's something that I was, like, conscious of going in and was worried about, but... I will say this is like one of those weird things about my reading taste that I don't comprehend, <laughs> but there are certain male authors that I just really jive with. And one of them is Hemingway, which is mm. probably the biggest mystery of my entire like reading career. Indeed. I don't understand why I like Hemingway. Like I do a little bit. I can break down why I like Hemingway, but there's so much of Hemingway that I'm like, this goes against everything else I like in life. Why? And it was really interesting reading this book. I enjoyed the writing in this book in a similar way that I enjoy Hemingway's writing. It is this simpler language that has a lot going on underneath. And then there are these certain sentences that just are so simple, but yet so impactful. I was really actually mad that I, I have this on, a, on my nook. And I was like, oh, this is the one time I wish I could like underline because, you know, mm. what I really, really enjoyed about this book was the writing style and also just the way in which, like, speaking about it being from a different culture. Again, if you don't know, Casey and I are very white. <laughs> we are white people. <laughs> Me even more than Casey. Um, but anyhow, the point is, like, yeah, I, I am not from this culture either. I This is not a culture that is uh, one I have been brought up knowing. But the ways in which... The, the writing is so good about simply, like, building in elements of this culture and, like, not overloading you with it. Just kind of, it's funny because I read a lot of fantasy, so it's really tempting for me to discuss this as, like, world building, but obviously it's, it's different. Mm. But, like, it's a similar technique of being able to understand that some things you want your reader to pick up from context clues. You don't want to explain everything because then they get really overloaded, so you leave a certain amount of context clues, and then you build a certain amount out that's, like, more necessary for you actually to explain. And I thought this book did such a great job of, of balancing those things. So I really, like I said, I really liked the prose. I really liked learning about this culture and getting to just kind of, like, sit with it. I think that my more middling feelings on the book are certainly that I'm a big character reader, and from a character perspective... Yeah there's not as much there to grab onto. There are some really great moments, and I think we'll talk about those, and I wish there had been more of them. And certainly the overarching narrative about like showing this society pre-colonialism and then showing the start of colonialism and seeing how it breaks down is really impactful. And that's the part where I feel like intellectually, academically, it's really interesting. But I, I agree with you that it was hard... In terms of the, sometimes I help, couldn't help feeling a little bit remote from the people yeah. themselves. And that makes it harder to be invested in the story. But that's like, I had a really, a really surprisingly positive response to this well, book, that's given amazing. what I thought I was going to feel going in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get why your friends or whoever you heard from 
we're I think the book is doing a lot more with this, but women and womanly and just the whole female gender is used basically as a pejorative throughout this novel. But I think that's intentional to draw you to the fact that uh, the main character, Okonkwo, he is just toxic masculinity personified. Yeah. So every time he puts down women or says, You play ball like a girl! He doesn't actually say that, but... No, but those are very similar things. <laughs> yeah, but anytime he's critical of women or putting down other men as womanly, we're not supposed to uh, to take him seriously in that regard. We're supposed to see that he is a fragile little boy trying his dist <laughs> to pretend that he's a big macho man. No, and I'm like, I very much felt that too reading this book. And I think that I mean, similar to like how your feelings about Pride and Prejudice Mm -hmm. are so different now than they were when you were in high school because of like, you know, you've matured, et cetera, et cetera. I do feel like, you know, the people I was talking to had all read this in high school. And it's very likely that like if they returned to it now, they would have a different feeling. I have no idea. And I need to I should go back and talk to some of them now that I've read it and and see because I am curious now that I've read it to know more because it could also just be that like this depicts a society in which it was acceptable to beat your wife. And you had, a lot of men had multiple wives. I wonder, like, obviously, I think reading that at 14, if you're not necessarily being equipped to think critically about it, you know, if you're coming from American culture, which is very different, I think there are a lot of really negative stereotypes and biases that can come into play uh, when thinking about that. And, like, obviously, it's not okay to beat anyone don't beat anyone. Yeah. Um, and I think the novel itself is, is you have characters within the novel be not like fully critical of beating your wife, but like certainly, certainly somewhat critical. Like right. I'm not going to defend the wife beating, but the book itself, I would say, does not feel like a sexist book to me. Right. And I, but I see how it could feel that way if you were reading it younger, not really like being able to absorb all of the messaging, not being taught it well, etc. So it's interesting because I think this book, it's walking such a fine line where it is is reflecting on, on the culture being depicted and it is being critical at times in a really understated way. Mm-hmm. But you can definitely read criticism. The Our main character, <laughs> he's really just a reprehensible person altogether and it's not just that he beats his wives he also beats his children and we see (laughs) that uh, bless you thanks he he beats his wives but he also beats his kids and at least in the case of one of his children that leads to this estrangement i'll put it that seems like a very nice way of putting it but an estrangement (laughs) between the son and the father but it's also like the thing with multiple wives. And I think that it's funny that like that you brought that up as a possibility of people being uncomfortable with this book, because that's kind of what we see happening at the end of the book where this outside culture comes in and it's like, that's immoral, blah, blah, blah. It's hard because because the book seems to recognize that there are certain elements of the culture that they're indefensible. Mm. But it, it's also recognizing there is this tendency 
that you look at this culture and you say, oh, that one thing is indefensible. All of it's indefensible. Spoiler alert, Christians come in. They see the entire Igbo culture depicted in this book as just evil and in need of correction. So they impose their own culture onto this culture, effectively erasing the Igbo culture in the process. That's not great. So yeah, there, there are certain elements that I just think because we're Americans, we're raised with different values that we're going to be uncomfortable with that. But that doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that different values are bad. Would I want multiple wives? Probably not. But that is just part of their culture. And from what we can tell, everyone's fine with it. They've, that, that's just the culture they've been raised up in. Yeah, you raise a, a good point. And I think that it is important to obviously be like, yeah, these things are just cultural differences. And then these things are cultural differences that like, yes, we can objectively say beating people is bad. <laughs> yes. And, and I want to get into the summary soon so we can talk yes. in more detail about things. But like, since you brought this up, I do want to address it. I think that because you're reading this within the context of, say, a ninth grade classroom, a 10th grade classroom, even like upper high school, depending on how the teacher chooses to approach this, there just can be a lot of like really negative stuff happening in the classroom where people are not engaging respectively or respectfully with the culture and also mm-hmm. not being respectful with each other. Because I could see very much 13, 14 year old boys reading this and being like, Ha ha ha, multiple wives and making the female students feel uncomfortable, et cetera, et cetera. There's just a lot of shenanigans that can happen in high school if, like, regardless, honestly, of what the teacher <laughs> does sometimes. Teenagers will be teenagers and uh, be assholes sometimes. So I could definitely see where, like, people could have negative interactions with this book, not so much because of the book itself or anything, but just because, like, ill-informed high school students are maybe not the best suited to handle this material. Like they absolutely should have to handle this material for the exact reason of not being well suited to it so they can become better able to handle it. But like, I'm really interested to go back and talk to more of my friends in more detail about their experiences and Mm -hmm. find out more because I, I think back to some of the books that I read in high school that like were just kind of uncomfortable classroom experiences and uh, certainly it was nothing even close to what this book covers. So I, I think this is a weird book, honestly, to be choosing to read in high school. Yeah. But we, we can get into that more <laughs> later. Let's, yeah, let's get to the summary. Yeah, which I'm going to keep really simple this time around. And I feel like we can explain certain situations in more depth because sure. this novel is broken up into three parts. And a huge part of the first part of the book is just getting accustomed to Igbo life or um, more commonly, I believe known in this book, it's, it's Igbo like I B O, but I believe a lot of people are more familiar with it as Igbo. I G B O will be using Igbo because that's what's in the book. But just in case you're like, are these two things the same? Yes, they are. I mean, I don't know this language, but I do think the G is generally silent. From my understanding, it is pronounced Igbo either way. Good. I maybe should have done more research into that because I did watch a few <laughs> videos and they were pronouncing it Igbo, but they were also videos that were not from people of that culture. So something to Google. According to Wikipedia, 
it is apparently pronounced Ebo. All right. Good to know. <laughs> All right. We are introduced to our main characters in the first part, one of which we've already talked about briefly, whose name is Unkakuo. And he is a very manly man. We are immediately introduced to him as, like, he defeated this really famous wrestler, like, back in his prime. He really uh, pulled himself up by his bootstraps, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, his father was, like, pretty lazy and didn't really work at farming his yams. What's the yams? The yam is the power that be. And just wanted to sit around and play music, which, you know, I get, but, like, maybe <laughs> isn't the best for, like, keeping your family fed. So Okonkwo is like really has, because of his dad, this real drive to prove himself and be this super masculine dude who does it all. And there's this really great quote that I, I highlighted. Talking about Okonkwo, it talks about how he ruled his household with a heavy hand, but then it's like, perhaps down in his heart, Okonkwo was not a cruel man, but his whole life was dominated by fear, the fear of failure and of weakness. It was deeper and more intimate than the fear of evil and capricious gods and of magic, the fear of the forest and of the forces of nature, malevolent, red in tooth and claw. Okonkwo's fear was greater than these. And then it goes on to say, like, it was the fear of himself, lest he should be found to resemble his father. And so Okonkwo was ruled by one passion, to hate everything that his father had loved. That's really the groundwork you need for this character, because it's true. Like, he, that is really what rules him throughout the entire book. Yeah. And so he is our, our protagonist who we mainly follow, but we do get to know some members of his family as well, including... <laughs> oh, God. One of the family members is his son, uh, Nuoye, I believe is how you pronounce it. And then there's his uh, second wife is the most significant of the wives. Uh, this is not Nuoye's mom. This is uh, another one of the wives. And her name is... Ekwefi. And then she has a daughter whose name is Azima, Okonkwo's probably favorite child, because he's constantly thinking about how he wishes she'd been born a boy, because she gets him and she has all these traits that he would want in a son. Whereas Nawoya is like more, he reminds Okonkwo of his father, uh, in that he is like a little softer. He likes spending time with his mom and listening to her stories and He's not like this super hard, super masculine dude the way his his father is. And so constantly in Okonkwo's mind, he's comparing these two children. And another very significant sort of member of the family early on in the story is kind of how this whole the whole story kicks off is that one of the members of Okonkwo's village has been murdered by a nearby village and they are now getting sent in replacement for this, this murdered uh, woman. A virgin to mm -hmm. marry the man the murdered woman was married to and essentially replace her. And then a young boy. And the young boy is Ekmefuna. He gets put into Okonko's household and just kind of like abandoned there for a while. Yeah, like three years or something like that. Three years, yes. And he's young enough that he starts to kind of forget his life back in his old village, and he becomes really close with Okonko's family. He and Nawaya become basically like brothers. He calls Okonko father. You know, he becomes a part of their family. He's been there for three years, like he would. Like, right. That's what's going to naturally happen. So 
There are some a few significant events that happen in the early part of the book, other than just general world-building, storytelling, and there are sort of three wrong things Okonkwo does in the early days. The first one is that there's this week of, of rest, essentially, that like is a cultural thing you're not supposed to... You're supposed to be like kind and not, not be your wives during this week. Week of <laughs> peace. You're supposed to be just like a really, really nice, good person during this week. What happens is that uh, one of Okakwa's wives ends up going out to get her hair, hair plated and doesn't make provisions to make sure dinner is taken care of and stuff and is late coming back uh, during this week. And then Okonkwo decides to beat the hell out of her and shoots at her with his shotgun. Yeah. He misses, but he still shoots at her. Indeed. And everyone's like, dude, no, you you can't do this. The gods are going to be so angry at you. The earth goddess is going to be so upset at you. So he has to like do some things to make up for it. But that's sort of the first thing. And this is how... You start really getting a feel that as much as like he's a big part of the society and he like very much believes in its values, he's so proud of the fact that he's uh, like beheaded five men in war and he's so proud of like the strength of their village, but he doesn't really respect some of the the non warlike violent aspects of their culture. He doesn't really respect this week of peace. So that happens, and then three years after Ekmefuna comes to live with them the village elders decide that he has to be sacrificed to the gods and that will make the whole like murder thing that originally happened right and this is the right thing to do. The oracle of their people has said this is what they must do. They're like, Okonko, we're gonna go sacrifice him, but like you don't need to like be there or do it because he calls you father and that's not something you need to be involved with. And Okonko is really scared of appearing weak, so he decides to go along and... Eventually, like when they're about to sacrifice Ekmefuna, he realizes what's happening and he rushes to Okonko saying like, father, like hoping for protection. And then Okonko ends up killing him. So that's kind of like the second big thing Okonko does. And there's some other stuff that happens in this part one. There's a part I really want to talk about with Ekwafi and Azima that is probably my favorite chapter of the book, mm. which is actually, I think, the one that you remembered a bit of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's this uh, moment where Ekwafi had had really like, a really hard time having her children live. Like she'd born like a decent number of children that would die very early on in their childhoods. Azima's like the only one that has like made it to ten. And one night, like the Oracle comes for her and Ekwafi's really afraid that the Oracle is going to, like, take her and do something with her and, like, she'll never come back. It's like, she's so paranoid about losing her because she's lost all her other children. And so uh, when the Oracle takes Azima, Ekwafi, like, runs after her through the, like, forests and everything and ends up waiting sort of outside. There's, like, this, this cave area that is, like, the Oracle's sacred space where the god is in and... Uh, Ekwafi ends up waiting outside and Okonko comes and joins her in waiting. And it's like one of the really few moments we get of seeing Okonko's like real concern for his family and the love that he has for especially Azima. I, I really liked that chapter. <laughs> so I wanted to, to hype it up here because I, yeah. I, that was a good chapter. 
And then sort of part one ends when during this uh, big, I can't remember, is it a funeral or a wedding? Something big. Some big festival. It's both, in a manner of speaking. There's a wedding, and then it's immediately followed by news of somebody, a prominent member of the community has died. So it's immediately followed right. by a funeral. Right. So at this, this funeral, um, Okonkwo and the other men are messing around, and then Okonkwo's gun accidentally goes off, explodes, and kills someone. They understand it was unintentional, and therefore it's like essentially that they call it like the female version of murder. You mm-hmm. can't see the air quotes I'm doing, and because of that, he has he's exiled from the land for seven years. So he ends up taking his family back to his mother's homeland and living with his mother's relatives. And it's while he's with his mother's relatives that the first missionaries show up. And at first, everyone's just like, God, what, what is this? Like, you people, like, don't know what you're talking about. You're so stupid. You are not, we're not concerned about you at all because you're just going to get yourself killed. But one thing that missionaries in general are very good at, because these are the people who are looking to find something to pull them out of it, is like, you know, attracting people who are down on their luck, mm. having a really hard time, the outcasts of society. And so people do start going to the missionaries and converting to Christianity. And one of those is Noya, who has never really gotten over the death of his essentially foster brother. Yeah. It's really interesting because one of the things that gets discussed is that when Ekmefuna was still around, Nawaya was more interested in tying along with him, doing more of these traditional, like, masculine tasks and things. They were spending a lot of time with Okonkwo, and, like, he was becoming more of the son Okonkwo wanted him to be. But then when Ekmefuna was killed, Nawaya just kind of, like, no longer wanted to do those things or be around his father. And so their relationship had deteriorated again. Nawaya is very drawn to the missionaries and then ends up attending church. And when Okonkwo finds out, he starts strangling Nawaya. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, son of mine! <laughs> and if, if you know the YA author John Green, mm. he had, way back in the day, a very popular YouTube series where he would talk about essentially a lot of books that one would read in high school and just kind of go over them and break down some key themes. I believe the YouTube series is called Crash Course. And I'd watched most of them back in the day, except for the ones on books I hadn't read. And one that I hadn't read was Things Fall Apart. So I was like kind of excited in some way to read it so I could finally go back and watch the videos. (laughs) Anyhow, so I watched the videos and he made a joke after this part that I think is very appropriate. Mm. And he's like, and as y'all know, teenagers love being when people try and force them not to do things. <laughs> yeah, teens love being physically manhandled by their fathers. As anyone, as John Green put it, has read a YA novel would know. This goes splendidly. Uh, the YA uses this to fully break from his father yeah. and just completely joins uh, the Christians and leaves home. And Okonko is like, he's not my son anymore. He's not a part of this family. So the the missionaries are like slowly gaining ground, but you know Alconco still like no nah, like if we we really need to just drive them off like they're so weak 
But there's this story of uh, this village got completely wiped out mm. because they they killed a missionary and then a whole bunch of white men with guns showed up and murdered them all in retaliation. So there is this fear lurking behind everything. People are like, oh, one, they're, they're fools. They can't do much. And two, like a little worried about retaliation. So no one's really listening when Elkonk was like, let's murder them all, guys. <laughs> And then finally, the seven years are up, and so Okonkwo is able to return to his village, and he plans the super spectacular return, but it turns out that the missionaries have made a lot more progress in his home village. They're a pretty dominant force there by this time, and they're, like, pretty much all anyone talks about or anything. A number of the more, like, prominent people in the village have gone over, so it's, it's really this, a very different situation than when he left. And at first, it's kind of okay because the missionary in charge, uh, Mr. Brown, is is about more compromise. And so, like, he is willing to respect a lot of the evil people's ways, as long as it's not, like, you know, in violation of Christianity. But, like, respect them and kind of allow for, for some of that to remain. But then his replacement... Uh, one sec. I gotta pull up a line because this was another one I highlighted because it was really kind of again explained his entire like thought process. So uh, the successor is Reverend James Smith. He saw things as black and white, and black was evil. He saw the world as a battlefield in which the children of light were locked in mortal conflict with the sons of darkness. And so he gets a lot more rigid and um, a lot more extreme in how he approaches the entire situation, which leads to one of the more radical sort of members of his flock going after a spirit, essentially. I mean, it's it's someone dressed up as a spirit, but, like, they're masked, and it's very taboo to, like, touch them or remove the masks, and he goes and rips a mask off. Just hugely, hugely taboo, not okay. And so... The people of the village retaliate. They burn down his house and then they go looking for him at the church. And uh, the reverend's like, leave us alone. You can't touch us. But they're like, you have caused great evil to happen. We need to burn down the church. So they destroy the church. At this point, the it's not just missionaries. Other British people have come in and set up. Like there's a district commissioner who's in charge of like persecuting crimes and like stuff like that. So... Six of the more prominent men of the village go to, like, because they're trying to be like, this is illegal, which, like, like what do, what do the British think they're doing? Yeah. Colonization is what they think they're doing. <laughs> so they, like, go in to deal with the situation, and then they're arrested and beaten, and their, like, heads are forcibly shaven, and just the village is told they have to pay a ransom of a certain amount, essentially, in order for them to set these men free again. I'm not sure if I mentioned this, Okonkwo is one of those six men. So he is humiliated by this experience and just so angry. And so when they get back to the village, he's like, we need to kill them. We need to drive them out. And it feels like the village is starting to rally behind him when some more messengers show up. Uh, messengers from the British. He murders one of the messengers, but then... Everyone else is kind of just in disarray. They're not willing to fight. They let the rest of the messengers go. And Okonk was like, okay, so they're just going to give up. Like, this isn't, they're not, this is not the warlike people I thought we were. 
they're just going to, like, let this happen. The next day, when the district commissioner shows up with his men to, like, punish Okonkwo for what he's done, it's revealed that Okonkwo hanged himself. And the uh, book ends with the district commissioner thinking about the book he's going to write about the primitive people of this area. That was a direct quote. And how he's going to maybe write a paragraph about Okonkwo. And that's how the book ends. And I'll close with the title of the book that he's come up with. The Pacification of the Primitive Tribes of the Lower Niger. But that's Things Fall Apart. Ah! I should read the poem that the title... Let me get it up. Because I do think it's important, at least on a literary level, in what this book is responding to. And, and I think you get that with that, especially that last line, where there are prominent stories about Africa written by white men. Heart of Darkness, for example, mm -hmm. that uh, Achebe came out and was like, these stories are super racist and offensive. He's very much responding to those ideas. So the title of this book, Things Fall Apart, is pulled from a poem. I'll just read the first part of it that's only that's really the relevant part to this. It's The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats. Turning and turning in the widening gyre. Gyre? The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. To provide some context of that poem, the poem is responding to World War I and this idea, especially prominent among Europeans, that it, this world war presaged the innocence, the world's innocence is lost, and Christianity is going away, and godlessness is coming in to reign. We get, in this book, Things Fall Apart, kind of the inverse of that, where it's the incoming of the Christianities that spells the end of this culture, of the Igbo culture. To me, it's morbidly funny, because I feel like a lot of the modernists hemming and hawing about how Christianity is dying and blah, blah, blah. And so you have this book from the perspective of a person who lives in a culture that is actually dying out because of Christianity. And he's like, you don't know what you're talking about, do you? Uh, there is something really interesting um, about the fact that the book does open with this piece of, of European poetry and that it is, yeah, in that way you're talking about responding, using European poetry to then make a point that has been totally outside of the realm of European understanding. I think it was really clever the way the book both opens with that, uh, just a stanza of the poem, and then closes with, getting the perspective of the district commissioner mm. and showing how things have been framed and how we're used to seeing them framed. And then in the middle, giving us this totally radically different perspective. And one of the things I did also appreciate about the John Green YouTube videos is that he gave a little context for like when this was written. 
So this was written during, like, African decolonization. So it's, like, really interesting also within that that perspective of thinking about, like, someone at a period of when Africa is decolonizing, thinking back to when it was first colonized. And so there's a lot of, like, really interesting circles sort of created by the book. This book is so dense that it's because there's so many directions you can take it. There's like the feminist side of things and there's the literary side of things and then there's the historical side of things. One thing I really liked, I think you mentioned this about how the culture is depicted in the story and how the first part really gives us a sense of what the culture is like. I don't know how much we're going to be talking about this. But one thing that I thought was really cool was the, the system of government that's in place in the Igbo culture, which is extremely democratic. It's There's no singular leader. There's a group of elders who kind of take charge in discussions, but everything feels very open. And the sense of the economy in place, it seems very equitable. Okonkwo makes a lot... <laughs> of noise about the fact that he raised himself from nothing. And in a sense, that is actually true. <laughs> There's like a very long passage that's just dedicated to the facts of like how he had to secure a loan of crops. But through hard work and determination, he did bring himself up and has elevated himself to a high status in this culture. To me, it's kind of funny that Americans especially, that's what I'm used to, but I suppose Europeans as well, really talk a mean game when it comes to democracy. But in this book, we see that very thing. And the tragedy is that it's white people who come in and destroy this incredibly democratic government. I do want to... Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to make it clear democratic and equitable for the men. Sure. Um, That's <laughs> just to fair. like, I, I think that was implied, but I, I do want to just put that on the surface there. <laughs> but yeah, it is, it is really interesting um, to see how like disputes are handled and stuff. Mm -hmm. So we see one day of like, essentially people just handling disputes, but like the, the men who are sort of this, this council are, done up as spirits and are embodying spirit spirits. And so it is interesting because like the case that, that is brought to us um, in this particular instance, which I thought was really interesting, is that this uh, man's wife has run away from him and has been staying with her brothers and he wants her back. But they're like, you have been beating the shit out of her. We are not giving her back if she's just going to get like almost murdered all the time. And uh, they're, like, you know, demanding, like, a, a real apology and how it's not to do this. And the, one of the interesting things is, so it concludes with the, the elder slash the spirits being, like, you need to go bring palm wine and apologize and, yeah, promise not to do this again. And then the interesting thing is we get commentary from people watching. And they're, like, this didn't need to get brought before them. <laughs> and they're, like, oh, but this dude, you know him. He needs it from the spirits in order to, like... Mm -hmm. actually like go apologize and it's a really interesting system where it feels like you know some of these things might like the people might be able to work out on their own in terms of what the right thing is to do like they had it almost worked out but they wanted 
to have the decision given this like higher authority in a way. But yeah, it's interesting because we see a lot of things that do get kind of worked out within the society themselves, but then like religious elements get brought in to like further justify those decisions. I don't have like anything really critic <laughs> like like interesting to say about it. I just thought it was cool. <laughs> like an interesting dynamic system. Well, and this is kind of why I love reading these kind of books that are written because I've read books or stories at least, or I've seen movies and that sort of thing about countries in Africa and conflicts in Africa, but it's always framed the, from the perspective of Americans. So the, <laughs> they're always framed, the African characters are always framed as the other, and it's like weird and mysterious and this culture makes no sense and it's so backwards and primitive and blah, blah, blah. And then you get a book like this, and it's like, oh, actually, this is completely, and I'm glad you called me out the, on the fact that, that there are inequities built into the system. But it also, there's a lot of it that's just very, very sensibly handled. Like that whole trial scene. It's funny, like you said, that there, there's commentary of like, what is the big deal about? They should have handled this themselves. And it's just like normal day to day. They have their shit handled, basically. It's a breath of fresh air to see a book that has some kind of respect for the culture it's depicting. And of course, you're more likely to get that when it's a, a member of that culture writing about the culture. When you have Americans or Europeans writing about this culture, you get the bullshit at the end of the, the pacification of primitive tribes. And that's how it's always framed. You get that or you get the Pocahontas treatment. Right. Where it's like... They were such innocents in this, like, paradise land, blah, blah, blah. And I think what is nice about this is that it, it balances that because you, you do get this scene of, like, really interesting dealing with community conflict and the way that the community itself kind of forms the justice system. But even within that scene, obviously, like, for the woman who's getting beaten and ran away to her brothers, she probably doesn't want to go back to her husband. And it's been decided that, you know, if he apologizes this way and whatever, like, she has to. So, like, you see, you do see also those, you see both at once, which is really nice and profession. You see that, like, obviously no society is perfect. Right. And this one certainly has its problems. We also see that there are certain, and we don't really fully get told what the details are behind this, but certain people that are just outcasts mm. and they're completely shunned from society and they're, like, not allowed to cut their hair or, like, do all these things. And we never really find out what the deal is with them and why they are this way. And then you obviously have the entire very tragic situation with Ekmefuna, who gets sacrificed very retroactively, which I feel like is almost worse. Yeah. <laughs> like, obviously, it's bad to kill a kid no matter what, or bad to kill anyone no matter what. But like, there's... There's this, like, really horribleness about the fact that, like, three years later, they're like, all right, we're going to sacrifice him. And another thing that gets brought up a lot and is given as a reason why multiple women join the Christian church later on is that, like, twins are considered to be just horrible, an abomination. If a woman has twins, those twins have to be left out in the wilderness to die. And so there are, like, there are these things that get brought up as, like, very negatives and the story is not endorsing these things it's just kind of presenting them to you right. 
And I think that's that's also what I liked about it because it's 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 presenting the whole culture to you and showing you the beauty of it, but also showing you the negative things about it um, and not really trying to. The only thing I think it really wants you to feel is it wants you to feel the tragedy of it just getting completely obliterated at the end. It's not saying you should, you know, elevate the society and like this is the best thing ever. It's not saying it's the worst thing ever. It's just saying like whatever it was, there were important things here. And the fact that it is getting trampled over and lost mm. is a tragedy. Yeah, I, I think it's not framed as good or bad. It's just showing how elements of this culture, both the good and the bad, contribute to its own downfall. Because there is that detail mm. that the first woman who joins the Christians is a woman who keeps having twins. Mm -hmm. And in the fact, it's not just the woman that's impacting. There's a story with Nuoye. He, it's tied into the death of his foster brother, but he also brings up this memory of hearing the twins crying in the forest that have been abandoned there. And he never really knew how to process it. And he certainly wasn't going to get any answers from his dad. So it's just these kind of traumas he kept collecting until finally the Christians came along and had a message that seemed tailor-made for him, giving voice to all these things that he has felt. We don't really see him see too much interaction between him and the Christians, but the, the few scenes that we do, it's always very positive and very open and very willing to hear him out and embrace him as he is. And then you contrast that to his f***ing dad who's, who starts to strangle him in response to him hanging out with the Christians. And it's just like, that's the tragedy, especially with Okonkwo, that he is so terrified of being like his own dad that he goes as far as he can to the other side of the spectrum in what he thinks is in deference to his culture. But man, if there's one character that we see breaking norms mm -hmm. and defying the values of his culture, it's Okonkwo. Like you mentioned in the summary, those uh, mistakes that he's made where, you know, he beats his wife during the week of peace. He is the, the only character here who kills one of his own clansmen. It's by accident, but nonetheless, he's the only one who does it. And, of course, he kills... Let me try to get his name right. Ekmefuna. Yes, that's the one. Basically kills his son. All because he doesn't want to look like a woman, quote-unquote. Ah, oh, the sheer tragedy of it that that Okonkwo is contributing to the downfall of his own tribe in the way he's acting. And I, and I love the ending because, well, I guess before we get to that, there's a quote I want to read near the beginning of the book that also, I think, spells out a lot of what this book is about. It's Okonkwo's dad speaking to him. Okonkwo, he has just like borrowed a bunch of crops from somebody but there's, it's just been a terrible, terrible season. There's, so his crop is just completely ruined and Okonkwo is just in despair. So his father gives him basically this 
not advice, but he tries to reassure him. And he says, do not despair. I know you will not despair. You have a manly and a proud heart. A proud heart can survive a general failure because such a failure does not prick its pride. It is more difficult and more bitter when a man fails alone. Reflecting on that line, going to the end, and the whole response to at the end when he like kills the messenger, looking around and seeing the community basically in disarray and not joining him in attacking the messengers. You could see that as a contradiction of his dad's words at the beginning, where the general failure of the community leads to the failure of the individual. So that's like one possible read of it. But you could also see that Okonkwo thinking, you know, he really <laughs> tries to play up that his clan is a warlike and manly culture, but he acts so rashly, he basically is like certifying the doom of his culture because, like you said, there is that other other tribe or whatever that was wiped out because they attacked the Christians present in their community. And Okonkwo is doing exactly the same thing here. That's the moment where the individual is failing because he's not acting as a community and community is stressed so much throughout this book. So he's not acting as a member of the community. He's acting on his own and trying to force the whole community behind him. So he is failing alone. And in that sense, that's when his pride fails him. And he interprets it as the community failing him. But really, it's him failing the community. And it's it leads to the ultimate failure of the individual by killing himself. Ah, it's just so complex. And it's so cool. It's all kind of operating under the surface. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, again, there's another really nice callback or parallel in the narrative where, like, the book opens on the murder of one of their people um, mm. by another people and them considering going to war over that and Okonkwo being selected as the messenger ambassador whatever to like hash out the details and going to this other village and being treated like a king and being able to bring back the the woman and Ekmefuna and see like the response that he wants and thinks that his culture is all about he's very excited about the chance to like potentially go to war and having the people of this other village be very frightened of him and versus like the parallel at the end of the book where like they, again, like someone has done them a great offense. And so Okonkwo and five other men are sent as ambassadors, essentially, to like deal with the situation and they're beaten and treated horribly and etc. And And there's not that sense of strength that Okonkwo wants and his misunderstanding of what his community and his culture are really comes to the surface in the end, as you said, like he... He's very proud of them being a, a powerful people, a warlike people, and that's not ultimately what his culture is actually about. There's this really interesting scene with him when he's back with his uh, mother's relatives, where his like great uncle, I think, mm -hmm. is talking to him about like why why are you <laughs> sad when you're here? Um, 
Why uh, is one of the commonest names we give our children, Neneka, our mother is supreme? Uh, why is that? And Okonko's like, I don't know. And he's like, all right, let me explain. It's true that the child belongs to its father, but when a father beats his child, it seeks sympathy in its mother's hut. A man belongs to his fatherland when things are good and life is sweet, but when there is sorrow and bitterness, he finds refuge in his motherland. Your mother is there to protect you. She is buried there. And that is why we say the mother is supreme. It's really interesting because that's one of the moments in the book where we get like a textual example of uh, a character kind of bringing up the importance of women within the culture. And the fact that Okonko doesn't really know how to, he knows how to do the very like stereotypically masculine, the hyper masculine things of like working super hard and being a stern hand in the household or whatever, going to war, all those things. But he doesn't know how to deal with the whole other side of like being a person and being alive. The more traditionally feminine things like having, letting those soft feelings show, being able to love and give and comfort and receive comfort, not have the option be war every time, but be able to like have a different response. And I'm not saying like that, the narrative is not saying that, oh, Okonkwo, like it is saying Okonkwo is wrong, but it's also yeah. not saying the way to deal with this was to like, make peace with the missionaries or whatever like right the narrative very much i think understands that there was nothing they could do they could not fight against this and it's showing the ways in which the community is divided because there are people that were not served by the way that the society was and so of course they turn to an alternative like that's that's what happens if people are dissatisfied with society they form a counter society mm. So it it is interesting because they yeah it doesn't show oh Okonkwo if he had just been different like then they all could have succeeded succeeded but it certainly says that like Okonkwo's death itself he is so ruined by what happens because he has this fundamental misunderstanding of what society is and he cannot deal with this other half of his society he cannot deal with a people that is not this strong uber masculine warlike force and that's what ultimately breaks him and he's shown that through the missionary's arrival but it it was something that was there all along they did not cause that it just they just showed it to him mm -hmm. yeah because it's like there is a sense that you see with all the outcasts and the women who have twins or whatever that if the culture was just willing to adjust and there is one character i'm blanking on his name but there is one character who kind of starts to internally question certain customs of the culture and what it's doing to the community, but he never really gets a chance to act out on those, uh, on his skepticism, I guess. Stick around for part two next week on Reread. See you then.